guys. Welcome back to our teaching in the book of John. Now, the last time we were here, we were completing chapter four and looking at the healing of a nobleman's son. And basically what we saw, even though there was a healing with a nobleman's son and in the previous section, there was salvation brought to a Samaritan woman and even a number of people in a Samaritan village there was a parallel. There was a comparison with actually what was taking place. And that is, can you believe without seeing? Now, I don't want to get into making that strong contrast, or should I even say that strong comparison? Because what we actually saw, the Samaritan woman was Jesus diverted into the regions of Samaria. Because remember now, the Jews would normally go around Samaria. But it was the will of the father that he should go there and that he should present the gospel, even declare himself to be the Messiah, saving this Samaritan woman. And then the events that came after that. And we saw the number of people believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And the point that I was trying to drive home, even that I'm driving home now, is there was no record of Jesus doing any great sign or miracle amongst the Samaritan. So when we continue on, Jesus goes back to his hometown in the Galilee where he prepares for uh, uh, the very atmosphere of rejection. That is when Jesus said a prophet is not without honor except in his own country among his own kin. So that's the idea of preparing for rejection. Everyone else would receive me, think in the back of your mind, the Samaritan, until I get to my own kind. Now consider the Jews and what took place. There was this nobleman who had a son that was sick unto death, who had traveled a good little distance to go get, go see Jesus, bring him back, heal his son. And Jesus gave a somewhat odd response to this man for uh, the desire for his son to be healed. And he basically said, except you, you people, that is, see signs and wonders you would not believe. Odd enough, because what? It was a very common thing for Jesus to heal people, so it should not have been a common thing now. The point that Jesus was trying to make was to challenge the man's faith. Can you believe in my word without seeing a sign? even without me going to your home or in Capernaum, which is where they were, and lay hands on the son. Can you believe without seeing? And so that's why I said earlier that this is a somewhat a comparison with the Samaritans. Why? They believed even though they saw no miracle. They only heard the word of Jesus and responded. And likewise, this nobleman did the same. He mustered up the faith by the grace of God, of course, he mustered up the faith to believe in Jesus' word, left and went home for a good distance or towards Capernaum to find his son healed because he believed the word of Jesus. OK, and so then it basically ended that chapter. And now we get into chapter five. But let me say this. Chapter five is very lengthy and it's quite theological. What I mean is there are a lot of uh, things that we'll see in chapter five that speaks of theology, that is the study of God, the person of God, attributes of God, 
as well as Christology, the study of Christ, attributes of Christ. And what we'll basically find out is when it comes to the nature of the two, that is the nature of God, the father, as well as the nature of God, the son, it is the same. That is God, the father, of course, is God and Jesus is also God too. Now, we need to remember that is the fundamental theme of the gospel of John. Remember how he opened it up again. Let me repeat it again. What? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So that word, God, what happened? Verse 14, he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So God became a man. And this is the thesis of the gospel of John from, uh, the, from the prologue of John. Proving, let me, let me say it this way, stating a fact of Jesus's uh, person, that is, he is God, stating that fact. And then after making that fact, proving that fact. And this is what he does in these uh, sections that we are reading even now, especially in this one that we are about to encounter. It is a strong textual Proof that Jesus is God as well as he claims, he claims to be God. You see, I've heard some people say that Jesus never directly claimed to be God. Okay, either you're confused in how you understand the gospel or you have never really studied the gospels, especially the gospel of John, whose main point is the divine nature of Jesus. You've never really studied it because Jesus makes this claim through and through. And when he is accused of making this claim, he does not back down from his statement of claiming that he is God. And the reason why I'm kind of hesitating, I don't want to get into the text, but I need to close this introduction right now. This review, should I say. But the whole point is Jesus claims equality with God. To be equal with God the Father is to be God. God equals God, so to speak. Okay, but anyway, anyway, let's just go on to chapter five, and we're going to get to this man who is healed at a particular pool, and once this man is healed at a particular pool, Jesus gives him a certain commandment, but enough of that. Let's just go to the text and then we'll discover it. Okay, we're not going to do all of five. It's very long. It's very long. It's very long. But we're going to get to one of the central claims of Jesus, his equality with the Father. And then we'll pick up on the next video and end the chapter. All right. Okay. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now. There is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord would come down at certain seasons into the pool and stir up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the pool, 
up of the water, stepped in and was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Okay, so now as we open up the channel, we see what? There is now a feast of the Jews. Now, John didn't tell us in particular uh, what feast that it was. It could have been the Passover, but we don't know particularly. Remember, the Jewish men had three uh, feasts that they were obligated to attend, three festive times of the year. Feast of Passover, and you no know, Passover unleavened bread was basically celebrated as one. The Feast of Weeks, also called the Feast of Pentecost. You see that in where? Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. So that, that's the high day. But Feast of Pentecost, and then finally, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the pe Feast of Ingatherings, or Sukkot. That, it's all called the same thing. Tabernacles, Ingathering, Sukkot. Okay? So there was three types of feasts that I had to go to. John didn't state what feast it was because it seems clearly John was not uh, emphasizing the particular feast time, but the events that took place at the feast. Okay, so that's the time it was. Now he goes to the location by the sheep gate. That is, there was a pool by the sheep gate. Now. In the temp temple temple compound for the temple compound, you know, where the temple of Jerusalem was, that's what we call the temple compound. It was basically surrounded by gates, basically surrounded by gates. One of those gates around the temple compound was called the sheep gate. OK, and it was near this sheep gate that we had this particular pool called Bethesda. And this pool basically had five columns. So basically what we see is a pool outside of the temple mound, out, that is outside of the temple gates. And this particular pool had a lot of sick people with all types of diseases. Notice they were sick, they were blind, they were lame and withered. So around the pool were these people and this brings us into a very heartbreaking scenario because when we look at it, you can imagine again and always turn on the theater of your mind. Imagine all kinds of sick people waiting around this pool. So the very atmosphere was heartbreaking when we see so many sick people. Then it said that they were waiting for the moving of the waters in verse three. Now, I'm not going to get into a lot of details. Okay. I'm not going to do that. But from verse three, where it says waiting for the moving of the waters to the end of verse four, this is not a part of the original Greek text, even though many Bibles leave it there. But notice probably if you have a modern Bible, Look at your notation there. This particular section is not a part of the text. This is what is called commentary. That is, a later writer added it. But John did not have this part earlier. And by giving this commentary, what the writer was needlessly doing, because actually he ended up really repeating himself, because John talks about it, but... What the writer was doing was he was trying to enlighten us as to why there are these sick people surrounding this pool 
uh, at, at, at Pool of Bethesda. And that's basically what the addition is all about. But in the original Greek manuscripts, that is, any, any manuscripts before this appeared about what, after 400 AD. I don't supposed to get into that. I don't supposed to get into that. But that's what that's what we call textual criticism. So I just do that. Let me just do this. That's called textual criticism, trying to determine what script, what were the original writings of the scripture. This is the practice or the study of textual criticism, what I'm telling you about right now. Okay. And that's why I wanted you to understand this was not in the text until after we didn't see any part of this until after I think 400 AD, but enough said. The commentary simply stated as to why the people were waiting around. And that is because it was believed and this was a superstitious belief. OK, so I don't want to hammer it too much, but it was a superstitious belief. But it was believed by the people that an angel of the Lord would from time to time come down into the pool and stir up the waters and whoever would get into the waters first would be healed of whatever affliction that they had. It is clear that this is superstitious because number one, God would not do something so coarse and so, I don't know, it's just a bad thing to do. Imagine, what am I trying to say? You got a bunch of sick people. They're already sick. You got people laying around the pool. They're not in good health. They're in bad health. How facetious it would be for God to send an angel to stir up the waters so that they would scramble to see who would get in there first and then only the first one would be healed. Something just doesn't sound right about that. But nevertheless, we got to move on. But this was what the location was. The pool of Bethesda. This was during a certain feast time. And this was the occasion. This a man, as we're going to talk about, because I'm about to get there now, is laying around this pool waiting for the moving of the waters. All right. Enough of that. I think I'm a little long winded today, but let's go. A man was there. Verse number five, who had been ill for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. OK, so that that deals with the commentary. OK, what do I mean? Remember, I said the commentary was needless because it was repetition coming from the man's own mouth, with the exception of an angel coming down and stirring up, the, stirring up the waters, an angel, basically he said the same thing. So we have a repetition, but let's go back. So now we are introduced to an unknown man who was ill uh, for 38 years. So his condition was also horrible too. For 38 years, he was in a bad shape and we will find out later on, seemingly unable to walk and lying on a pallet. So this man was in a very bad condition for a very long time. And we would simply say his condition, this man 
was hopeless. Okay. And then we see Jesus seeing the man. Now this, this is unusual in the sense of what normally takes place. Why? Most all of the time, or you should we even say, just back up at the end of chapter four, the ruler who came from Capernaum sought out Jesus. People, when they had seen that Jesus was able to heal and do miraculous works, they sought out Jesus. But in this case, we got something a little bit different here. In this case, Jesus seeks after the man. Jesus begins communication with the man. And Jesus also does other things that we'll get to as we work through the text. But the point is, Jesus starts and initiates this particular, this particular conversation, which is unusual. And it also lets us know that he is acting under divine compulsion. He is done. He's doing divine. That is according to the fact that he is God. He is being moved by God. He knows the thoughts. And that is God, the father, God, the father. He knows the mission that God gives him. He is acting under compulsion of his divine nature. But anyway, enough said about that. So Jesus saw the man lying there. And he knew that the man had been in that condition for a long time, which is why I was kind of struggling with what I was just saying to you. Jesus knew. Okay. Now in some, some translation to say saw, but the word literally in Greek is noose, which means it's a participle means knowing Jesus, knowing that the man was in that condition. This is the act of, Oh my God, do I even want to get into it? Okay. Okay. Let me get into it. I'm trying not to make it too long, but let me tell you something. Okay. This is when Jesus, let me say it this way, turns on his divine attributes. All right. Let me explain. When Jesus walked the earth in his ministry in the beginning, he walked the earth as a man. Okay. And therefore he limited himself as a man. Now, he had many wonderful advantages being instructed by the father, Isaiah 50. We ain't going into that one, but he had many wonderful benefits as the son of God, but he was also son of man. Remember, son of God speaks to his what? Divinity, that he is God. Son of man speaks to what? His humanity, that he is a man. And so when we say Jesus Christ, we are saying Jesus, the Messiah, we are saying the son of man, we are speaking to his human nature because only the Messiah can die for sins. And Jesus must be made a man in order to die for sins. I'm saying all of that to make you understand a point a, a statement that the apostle Paul made in the book of Philippians, I believe it was chapter two, how, the, and this speaks why Jesus is to be glorified. But the point is when Paul said that Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but laid aside, laid aside those things that made him God. Now, what that means, or should I even say what that does not mean is 
He never stopped being God as a human being, a man. He was still God. And of course, as God, he is still God. But the divine prerogatives, in other words, those attributes that made Jesus act as God to be everywhere, omnipresent at the same time, to know, let me say that one last, to have all power, all power, able to exercise it and to have all knowledge. Okay. These are attributes that only God possesses. When Jesus became a man, he laid them aside in the sense that he did not fully and at all times exercise his divine prerogative, exercise his divine powers. Okay. So there were times when you can say things and surprise Jesus. Like when the man come, uh, the Gentile man, and he has faith. He, Jesus said, says he wants you to come and heal his servant. No doubt it's a Jewish servant. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And the man said to Jesus, no, I understand it. I'm a man of authority just like you. Just say the word. And Jesus acted in a surprise way. He said, I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel. You know, and so the whole point is, why? An all-knowing God can be surprised. He knows everything. You can never surprise him. He knows what you're about to say. And this is what I'm trying to make you understand. The divine prerogative that he laid aside. Jesus did not exercise that power all the time. However, at certain times, he would. Kind of think of it. This is how I think of it. Like he would dip into those powers from time to time, according to the will of the father and according to what he himself was doing. So this is one of those occasions where we see Jesus exercising all knowledge. Okay. And, and we even saw it. He, he, he exercised it again early in the book of John. And I don't supposed to be going through all of these details, but he did exercise it earlier. Uh, um, this, this divine knowledge when Philip went to Nathaniel and he was under that tree and Jesus said, when he came unto you, I knew you, I saw you. Okay. From time to time, Jesus would exercise this power, but not all the time. And one of the points of John in John's gospel is he wants you to see Jesus's exercising of this divine power because in order to have such divine attributes, you must be God. Okay, now I detoured big time, but I still hope you guys appreciated that in the sense that you understand Jesus limited himself. And again, go back and look at what Paul said in the book of Philippians. Being found as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself. And the whole context of that is he humbled himself by laying aside his divine powers. But from time to time, he would dip into them and exercise them to let people know he is both man and God, or should I even say God in human flesh, the Messiah. But enough, 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 enough. So what? Where am I? So what happened? 
Jesus saw, he knew that the man had been in that condition and he said to the man, do you want to be healed? Odd statement. Why? The man is at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus knows uh, the superstition around that pool that you can be healed. And Jesus knew the man was sick. Of course, if you sick, you want to get well. Jesus did not ask him that statement in, in order to find out. But Jesus wanted to get the man's attention and make the man focus on him and what he is saying to him. And by this gaining his attention and his focus, he also helps the man to come to faith in a sense. But I'll talk about that a little, a little later on because that's a little bit uh, 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 confusing because Jesus, oh my God, I don't know what am I doing today. I keep going, getting ahead of myself. Even though Jesus is not asking the man to believe first, he sets up the environment so that the man can act on his words. Do you understand that? This miracle that Jesus did was not that if you believe me. No, this miracle was done by the word of Jesus alone. But Jesus needed the man's attention to focus on him and what he was saying so that his word could be accomplished. Okay. It was not necessary for faith. All right. What the man replied. I said it wasn't going to be long. Boy, was I wrong. I'm messing this up, but stay with me, guys. So the man replied to Jesus. I have no man to put me into the pool. He had no friends. He had nobody to help him get into the pool. But while he is coming, that is when the water is stirred up, somebody beats him to it. And this again lets us know. Uh, a reason for that commentary verse that I told you about in verse three and four about the angel coming down, staring up the waters, blah, 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 tweet, tweet, tweet. Not even necessary to add it because only thing that we see that was not included was the presence of the angel. But he did. We knew something supernatural was happening with the waters and therefore whoever would get into the waters first would be healed. And so the man is simply saying, I can't get in there fast enough. So I can't be healed. Now, let's look at Jesus' response now that he has the man's focused attention. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. Okay, so the response of Jesus, he has his attention Jesus commanded him. Notice this was not if you believe. So this was not a miracle of faith. This was a miracle done by the word of Jesus alone in the absence, absence of the man's faith. OK, so he tells him to pick up the pallet that he was laying on and walk. And then so wonderfully how John slyly says, now, you know, it was the Sabbath day that these things took place, letting us know, or should I even say, getting us prepared for the confrontation that is about to come. So Jesus heals the man, but notice what he tells the man, take up his pallet. Now, you got to remember, Jesus understands the customs of his day. I'm going to talk about that. He understands the beliefs of his day and the beliefs of his people. 
He knew that when he told that man to carry his pallet, that would cause controversy between he and the people, namely the religious leaders. And we'll talk about all of that once we move on down the line. So by telling us about the pallet and the man carrying his pallet and on the Sabbath day, this begins a controversy with the man and ultimately with Jesus, because it was Jesus who gave him the commandment to take up his pallet. 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. We got a lot to say on that. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Okay, so seeing the man on the Sabbath day carrying his pallet caught the attention of the Jews. And so they angrily said to him, what are you doing carrying your pallet? It is the Sabbath day. Now, what you got to understand is this. During, okay, let me simply start this way. Let me start this way. According to the law of Moses, okay, and all, all that the law of Moses, that is when we say the law of Moses, that God, all the directives of God said about the Sabbath day was to remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy and no usual work, no customary work, work that you would do normally. You don't do that on the Sabbath day. You are to rest on the Sabbath day. And this is what God had given the Sabbath day for man to have a time of rest, reflection, and ultimately of worship. Okay. There was nothing in the law of Moses about carrying your pallet. Now, so therefore, let me say it this way. The man did not break the law of Moses in any way. Jesus knew that carrying your pallet. Remember, Jesus knows all things. He is himself, the word of God. So Jesus knows what is breaking the Sabbath day. And of course, what does the scripture say concerning Jesus? He did no sin. So therefore, Jesus would not violate the Sabbath day for it would make him a sinner. And he did no sin. OK, so what Jesus commanded the man to do was not wrongful, not breaking of the Sabbath day at all. So what is the problem? And without getting into a lot of history. Let me just simply say it this way. We know. Remember, okay, Hosea said these words, my people die for lack of knowledge. All right. In other words, they don't know the word of God. They don't know the way of God. They don't know the righteousness of God. And so therefore they act and live in a way that's disobedient to God. You got it? Now, in the beginning, this was not the case, but as time went by, when the people sin and removal of God and going into idolatry, this became the case eventually. And we understand that what took place eventually Northern Israel, remember Israel was divided between the North and the South, Israel and Judah, Samaria and Jerusalem, North and the South. Northern Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. God sent the Assyrians 
and southern Israel, that is Judah, Jerusalem, was destroyed by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar. We know that after 70 years, according to the teaching of Jeremiah, the prophecy of Jeremiah, they would be in Babylon. And after 70 years, God would bring them back home. Under When God brought them home, okay, okay, I'm cutting some of the history out. Namely, a particular scribe by the name of Ezra. Ezra made it his personal business. That's why Ezra is called a, a, a prepared or ready scribe. <laughs> Ezra made it his mission to teach the law to the people of Israel, to teach to a select group of men who themselves would teach this law to the peoples, teach the law of Moses. Okay. Then after the generation of Ezra, some of the religious leaders got bright ideas and they wanted to do what they called build a hedge about the law. Now, Ezra only taught the law of God because that's what you're supposed to obey God's law. But other men came later on called scribes, sophries, I think it's called sophries, sophers, sophers. <laughs> These are simply means wise men. Okay. They came and trying to build a hedge about the law. What does that mean? They said, what we're going to do is add additional rules to the law so that if people do not break our rules, they will be even more so less apt to break God's rule. So they called it a hedge about the law to keep people from breaking the laws. And this, they began to create additional commandments after commandments, okay? And so then we get from, uh, uh, move through hundreds of years later and through all of these so-called scribes and sophers and all of this, and they added hundreds, even thousands of rules. But what became even more worse than adding these rules to the law, thousands of them is, they considered their rules to be sacrosanct and on par with the law, even to the point, even to the point where it's better for you to break the law of Moses, God, than to break one of their rules. And this is how they began to look at things. All of their additional rules that they had made, they had bound upon people to keep them and to break one of those rules would incur a great penalty. And they considered it just as uh, 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 obligated. You're obligated to do what they say in their man-made rules, even more so than the law of Moses. Okay. And this is what you see in the new Testament, in the gospels, which is called, sometimes you'll see it as uh, 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 the teachings of the elders. Okay. Or the doctrine of men that Jesus would talk about or the traditions of the elders, all of these additional rules. This is what is referenced by those things. Now, what's going on here in this text is one of those rules that they made up is now being challenged by Jesus. Notice the caring of the pallet is not in the law of Moses and that out of the law of Moses, those 613 commandments 
was all you are supposed to obey. And that was hard enough without these men through the times, hundreds of years, adding hundreds and hundreds of rules, okay? And later on, these so-called traditions of the elders were codified, that is written down and became what we know today as the Mishnah, okay? Somewhere around 200 AD, I believe. But anyway, okay, so let's back out of the history and get back into the text. So one of their rules is now being broken. That is, this man on the Sabbath day is carrying his pallet. And according to their rules, to carry your pallet on the Sabbath day, that is, from a public place to a private place, the man is to be stoned to death. Now you can see why the man reacted that way when they said to him, what are you doing carrying your pallet on the Sabbath day? Because now this man is in fear of his life. So the man began to try to tell about Jesus, but Jesus had not revealed himself. He didn't say, I'm Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Jesus just simply healed the man, commanded the man, and sent him on his way. So the man didn't know who it was. He couldn't identify Jesus. Of course, he can identify the faith, but not by name. He couldn't identify Jesus in this way. And so he just simply said that the man who healed me told me to carry my pallet. Why? This man is scared for his life. And you can see why he is, I don't want to use the term like that, but snitching on Jesus, even though he can't identify him. But anyway, why? Because Jesus has simply slipped away in the crowd. He didn't want to make himself known to the man at that time. But clearly, what is Jesus doing? He knows that this would be controversial. He knows that the carrying of the pallet would cause a problem. And that's what he told the man to do because he wants to reveal some things about himself. That is number one. He is Christ. He is the Messiah. And number two, their rules are improper. But let's keep going. 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, let's stop there. So now, later on, notice again, the initiator of these things is not the man. It is Jesus. Jesus found the man at the pool when he was sick, initiated them, initiated conversation with the man, healed the man, then told the man what to do. Take your pallet. All right. Jesus initiated all of those things. Again, the man now comes into the temple and it seems it seems like a good thing that the man is now healed. And so now being healed, he comes into the temple to worship God. But it's kind of crazy what the man does. The man shows absolutely, absolutely no gratitude to Jesus whatsoever. Jesus found the man. So again, what? Jesus initiates contact. He founds the man and he tells him, okay, slowing it down because I'm, I'm even getting ahead of myself. What I was talking about is the man showing no appreciation in the fact that the man, after talking to Jesus, ran back to the Jews. Remember the whole idea 
The Jews would be angry with Jesus. The Jews would persecute Jesus. So you would think that if Jesus healed your crazy looking self, you've been sick for 38 years. Nobody could do anything for you. Nobody could help you. You land your behind by the pool of Bethesda waiting on the waters to move. Nobody would put you in the water and time after time, when the waters got stirred, according to your superstitious belief, you were beat to the pool and you never got healed until one day this man shows up for no reason at all and heals you. And how do you respond to this man's goodness towards you? You run back to the religious leaders and try to get him in trouble instead of just simply, okay, you're gone from those leaders. The situation apparently had died down. You are not around them anymore. Why go back to them? Why treat Jesus in this ungracious manner? And that made me hot as a six shooter. Jesus has healed you and this is how you repay him. And this is something that we need to think about in our time. Oh, I'm about to talk for us. Okay, okay, no preaching, no preaching, no preaching. Out of all the good things that God does for us, do not repay him with evil. Do not repay goodness with evil. God has saved us. Then live in a way that's pleasing to God. The former things that you need to do, don't do them anymore. The, like you know, People say the place I used to go, the things that I used to do, blah, 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 blah. Those things don't save you. It's a response to God's grace. That's Paul's teaching in the book of Romans. We live in a way that pleases, to, pleases God because we respond to his goodness. And when God has been good to us, we need to remember that. We need to remember that in what we do as well as how we live. Don't repay God evil or in an ungracious way for his goodness. Okay. Enough preaching on that. Jesus found it. He initiates contact again. And so Jesus said, you well now. He said, okay, now look at yourself. Assess your condition. You're in good shape. Then he said, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, this seems to suggest there's a possibility that what? This man's particular sickness that brought him to uh, the pool of Bethesda in the first place may have been called caused by a particular sin that he had done. But this does not necessarily have to be the case because we know what all sickness, even death is because of sin. All sin. It doesn't have to be your personal sin. So let me say that so that nobody gets this thing in the head or the reason why I'm sick or the reason why I have cancer or the reason why this is going on is because I did something. Not necessarily the case. All sin, all sickness, even death is caused by sin. That is the original sin of Adam. And I'm not going to go into that. That's a separate teaching. And I've been going, make tangent teaching all day long. So I don't want to keep on going out. But, but just because you're sick, doesn't mean that you did something to deserve that. This is the case of original sin. What did God say to Adam? The day you disobey me, 
you will surely die. In dying, that's the Hebrew. In dying, you will die. That's literally the Hebrew. Okay, that's why we see that's in, in the emphatic. When we translate it, you will surely die. So therefore, all that is all those who are of Adam, Eve, because she came from the rib of Adam, every child, every human being born into the human race comes from Adam, is under the curse of death. So therefore, there is suffering, sickness, and death for all, even if you did nothing in particular to deserve a sickness, okay? But more so what Jesus is saying is this, consider yourself healed now, and remember for 38 years, you were in a bad place. You were really sick. Stop sinning or else something worse will happen to you. That is, you think you were sick for those 38 years. You ain't seen nothing yet if you go to hell. So what Jesus was literally warning the man was change his life. Of course, that is to believe in him as Messiah, all of those things, okay? But John is not emphasizing that, but he is warning him of something worse to come if this man does not repent and change from his sinning ways. That is hell itself, all right? And that's most likely what Jesus says. So, of course, that's when I, we finally get to the point where I was just saying to you, look how the man repaid Jesus. Once the man was able to identify Jesus, he ran right back to those people who wanted to do harm to him. And he sold Jesus out and told them, let me tell y'all who healed me. It's this man, Jesus, that healed me. Okay. Okay. And then it says, uh, 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 for this reason, I don't know if I read that, but let me. Yeah, I did read that. For this reason. The Jews were persecuting Jesus because he did it on the Sabbath day. In other words, it is because Jesus did things on the Sabbath day that violated their rules. One of their rules, let me tell you something, one of their rules. One of their rules was healing. They said that a man should not be healed on the Sabbath day. And remember, Jesus had this scenario happen out. No doubt the man was a plant. But coming into the synagogue, Man had a withered hand. Jesus knew what the deal was. So he looked around at all of them and asked them a question. Is it lawful? Is it? Notice what I said. Notice the words. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Jesus knew there was nothing wrong with that. And so he looked at him angrily, told the man, stretch out your hand, and he healed the man. If it was unlawful, Jesus never would have healed the man. But in their rules, in their rules, it was unlawful to heal on the Sabbath day. Even they made a, a, a comment. There are six days that a man may come and be healed. Be healed on one of them, not on the Sabbath day. Again, one of their man-made rules. And what we see here is Jesus was violating their traditions, their oral traditions, that, uh, again, tradition of the elders, the Mishnah, oral tradition, all the same thing. Jesus was violating that. Why? Because they were uh, uh, compelling men to keep their words and their law 
and not the law of God in the same sense. Okay. So Jesus was doing these things, healing on the Sabbath day. And notice here, healing. Jesus did two things to break their rules. He healed the man on the Sabbath day. And then he told the man to take up his pallet. <laughs> so they were just really angry with Jesus and they were doing what? They had began to persecute Jesus because their expectation, let me just say it briefly. The religious leaders, namely the Pharisees, namely the Pharisees, the lawyers and the scribes, they expected Jesus to be like them, to plug up the holes in the fence, to create more rules. And when Jesus did not come and create and side with them with all of their rules and create rules alongside of their rules, when Jesus didn't do that, they rejected him. And that was the primary reason for their rejection of Jesus. He didn't go along with them and all of their rules. Okay. So they wanted to get rid of him. They began to persecute Jesus. All right because he was doing such things on the Sabbath day. Verse 17. But before we get into verse, uh, so now before we get in verse 17, we got the setup. Now we got the whole setup for what's about to take place in John chapter five. And this sets, this is the primary theme of John chapter five, even the gospel of John. What's the setup? Let's review our setup one more time. Jesus comes to a feast of the Jew, see a man been sick for 38 years. Jesus heals the man, tells him, take up his pallet and walk all on the Sabbath day. The man does not appreciate what Jesus has done. The man tries to protect his own butt. He goes back and tells it, rats Jesus out, so to speak. Of course, Jesus knew that the man would rat him out. And so the confrontation began, Jesus and the people began namely Jesus and the religious leaders. That confrontation now begins. Who are you to violate the rules of the Sabbath? Okay, with that, with that confrontation, we now move into Jesus speaking directly to the people concerning what he has done and who he is. Let's back it up again. And what does John the gospel of John say, who is Jesus? He is God. So we are now leading to that confrontation that would yield those words from Jesus. Not in that exact sense, but in a very parallel sense. All right, you ready? 17. We're almost there. But he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. Now, boy, you got to catch that. My father is working until now, and I myself is working. Those are uh, uh, two parallel concepts. Uh, 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 okay, let me just read. I'll back it up, and I'm going to calm down, So, and I'm going to explain to you what Jesus just said. Verse 18, for this reason, notice that, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself 
equal with God. So now let's back it up again. Can you see it now? The gospel of John. John is simply saying, I'm telling you, he is God. But backing it up. So when they said why Jesus asked Jesus, but uh, he was doing these things on the Sabbath day, persecuting Jesus. He said to them, my father, what you have to understand is the customary way of addressing God by the Jews in public forum or with someone else is to say our father, our father, or you can even say your father, but never were you to say my father, because what you are doing is you are making an explicit and unique claim to God different from anybody else's claim. Okay. This is one of the reasons why you, I, I keep telling you, you have to understand the titles of Jesus. Son of man speaks of his humanity. Son of God speaks of his divinity. Why? According to Jewish cultural beliefs, the son is equal with the father. He shares the resources of the father. He shares the power of the father. So therefore he can do what the father does. Why? He is the son, the unique son, like the sense of firstborn son in a way. But that's why we call Jesus the only begotten son. It speaks of his uniqueness. So now what Jesus does, he tells them, he claims a uniqueness to God that no one else has when he says, my father. And then he continues to say, my, he says, my father is working. That is, even though God himself said that on the Sabbath day, he gave the rule of the Sabbath day that mankind should not work. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Even though God, the father said in the law of Moses, you are to obey the Sabbath, you mankind. And he gave reason for that. And I've already rehearsed all of that time of refreshing time. So man can get the time to work. But just because God himself rested on the Sabbath day and God himself declared the Sabbath day to be honored in the law of Moses, it did not mean that God stopped working. Why? The sun is still shining. The earth is still revolving. The universe is still being upheld. God the Father is still keeping all things going. Life is still going because why? The Father has never ceased to work. You got it? So even though he rested and even gave mankind the command to rest on the Sabbath day, God did not cease from all his works. He ceased from the work of creation. Did you hear that? He ceased from, ceased from the work of creation. In those six days, he created the universe. And on the seventh day, he rested. All right. But he did not stop. Even more so, the plan of redemption continued. God may have rested on that seventh day. But don't you know what happened with Adam? 
He sinned. And what did God promise in Genesis 3 and 15? He promised a redeemer. And what did God begin to act on as we look in the book of Genesis and see the line of the Messiah? God worked it out. He worked out his own plan of salvation. And what do we see throughout the annals of history? Even up until Jesus, we see God working out his plan of salvation. My father is working even up until now. And as the Sabbath did not restrict the work of my father, it does not restrict me and I myself am working too. So notice he, he compares, he places himself on par, parallel with the father, just like the father does. And he's going to say that here, just like the father does, I do. And just like the father works, I work because I am like the father. And now what we need to understand is the Jews that Jesus was talking to, they did not miss his statement whatsoever. We do in our time when Jesus says, my father, we miss it. We miss it. But the Jews understood the statement. Remember, it's their culture. It's their custom. Okay. They understood. Notice verse 18 to let you know that we're dead on the money. When Jesus said, my father, he was making a unique claim to God, the begotten one of God who would be equal with God. He was claiming to be God. 18. For this reason. What reason? Because he answered and said, my father is working. I'm going to work too because I'm going to do just what the father does. By this statement, this was the reason the Jews noted they were already angry with him. For what? Doing certain things on the Sabbath day. But notice what the text of 18 says. They were seeking all the more. Not, not just anger with him and persecute him. Now we want to kill him. Because what? By the Jewish mindset, they were saying, Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. Why? For a man, a mere man to claim himself to be God is blasphemy and the penalty is stoning. They were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Not only was he breaking the Sabbath day. We, we, we really want to be mad at you because of that. But when you call God your own father, you're claiming a uniqueness of that relationship in sonship to God. You are making yourself equal with God. Now, if you are equal with God, what does that make you? There's only one answer. You are God. So the Jews did not miss out on Jesus' statement of claiming deity, claiming divinity, claiming himself to be God. And notice what John said. And that's why they were really motivated to kill him. Not only because of the stuff he was doing on the Sabbath, but when he says he is God, we got to kill him now. So again, what was I saying to you guys earlier? You, I've heard people say Jesus never claimed to be God. Where do you read that? You either haven't read the gospel, you don't understand Jewish times and customs, or 
you don't understand what you read. He claimed that this is the very nature of the gospel of John. Jesus claims to be God, but let's just go on a little bit further. Okay. You guys got it without me repeating all of that. So now Jesus had made the claim that he is God. Now notice something. Okay. Watch this. Okay. And they're angry with him. He knows. He knows, first of all, he knows the claim that he has made that he is God. He knows also that the people are hot with him and want to kill him because he just claimed to be God. Did he think he made an error or misstatement? Was Jesus not actually making the claim to be God? Because if he wasn't claiming to be God, now would be the time to bag down and say, oh, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant when I said my father. Now would be a time for Jesus to correct the statement. But if on the other hand, he doesn't correct the statement, he builds on the fact that he claims divinity, that he is, if he builds on it, surely he knew exactly what he was saying and he intended to say to those people, I am God. Now let's continue on. Watch, I said all of that. Therefore, that is because Jesus made that claim, my father, claiming equality with God, the people want to kill him. Therefore, what? Jesus answered and was saying to them in response to that, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does also does in like manner. So note it, Jesus didn't bag, I'm, let me just deal with that. He didn't bag down from the point of claiming divinity at all. Notice he says, truly, truly, that is in the emphatic. Amen, amen. I am saying to you, what? The son, so therefore he is calling himself that unique one of God, that unique son of God, different from all other. Therefore, I am equal with God. What? The son can do nothing of himself in, in, unless he sees the father doing. But the other father does these things. In other words, like father, like son. Whatever the father does, the son does. And so therefore, Jesus is setting himself on par with God. I do exactly like the father. And why can I do exactly like the father? Because the nature of the father is also a shared nature of the son. What is the nature of the father? He is God. And guess what? He does what he chooses. And what is the nature of the son? He too is God. And like the father does who is God, so also does the son who is also God. Notice the point that I'm making. Jesus did not take it back. He didn't bag down. He set it forth even clearer. I am equal with God. Why? Because I do the same thing that he does. But let's continue. For the father loves the son. Oh, and I like that too. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. And he simply says this. 
talks about the relationship of the father to the son. That is, the father loves the son. And in that relationship, it is a relationship of revelation with no vagueness. What do I mean? Whatever the father does, he shows it to the son. Again, what you got to understand is Jesus is bringing out his uniqueness. God, the father, doesn't show everybody what he is doing. He, he And he never has. It is only one individual whom the father has ever shown all that he does. There is only one individual who has this uniqueness of relationship, of love with the father. That is the son. Why? Because the son is as the father. But notice something too now. He makes it clear the son is not the father. He is not the father. But nevertheless, as the father is God, he too is God. And that's what I mean when I keep saying he has the same or shares the same nature, the same being with the father, same being with the father. Anyway, let's go back to the text. And so he says, because of that love, because of that revelation, the father is going to show not only uh, 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 what you've seen thus far, but he's going to even show you greater things than these. Now, I'm not going to talk about that quite yet because the next statement will make that ready. God is going to show him something. Why? And this will make them wonder. Okay, watch this. When Jesus spoke of his equality with the father, this was shocking. <laughs> and it was shocking because Jesus used words. He only spoke words. You got it? So you got to, the, the beauty of this is just wild. It's outstanding. And when Jesus spoke those words of his equality, my father, and notice what happened. They say, man, claim to be equal with God. We're going to kill him for that. And Jesus said, that shocked you. He said, but guess what, though? I am God. I am one loved by God, receiving a revelation nobody else does by God. And if my words shocked you, imagine what's going to happen, how shocked you will be when you see me do even greater wonders from the Father. Notice now, watch it. Let me bring this part together. My Father will show greater works so that you may wonder, that you will marvel. That is, when God the Father works in him, this is what Jesus is saying, when God the Father works in him, it will establish his statements as true. If you think you were shocked by what I said, you're going to show sure enough be shocked by what I'm doing. But what I am doing is a work from the Father. And you know why the Father is doing that work in and through me? To validate what I've been saying to you. What am I saying to you? I am one with the Father. I am equal to God. And therefore, God is going to do these works to say, yes, he is. He, like me, if you'll let me say it that way, he is God. Okay? And so that's what Jesus is trying to bring out. The proof that the Father himself will give. If that statement of him claiming deity shocked them, you wait to see what he's going to do in the future. And what are you going to do, Jesus? Then he says, for just as the father, notice, you can't miss it. 
just as in the same way for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life. What? Even so the son gives life to whom he wishes. So notice again, that same idea of parallel, just like the father can do things. I, the son can do things. And why can the father do these things? Because he is God. And guess what? Since the father does these things and I can do, you know, I will say, we say, I can do the same thing. I can do the same. Well, how is it that you can do the same thing? The father does these things by virtue of who he is, God. And I am able to do these things by virtue, the same things by virtue of who I am because I'm God. But anyway, so notice also to the prerogative that he talks about that divine prerogative, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life. God chooses to raise dead and give life to whom he wishes. Notice what Jesus said. And guess what? Me too. The son also gives life to whom he wished. Just like God can do, I can do. And this brings us back to, so we're going to back up just a little bit, that you may marvel because this anticipates the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Okay, that's the great anticipation. Even greater than that, the anticipation of Jesus's resurrection from the dead, even from all of that, the resurrection from all men from the dead. And this Jesus would do. Okay, so just like the father, I do the same thing. I can do it because I'm just like the father. I am God. Again, what's my point? Let me shoot this part in again. Again, Jesus did not back down from claiming to be God. As a matter of fact, he gave more and more evidence and statements that what he said earlier still holds. He is God. Now, let's go to 22. For not even the father judges anyone. He has given all judgment to the son so that, so that, in order that purpose that all will honor the son, even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So now watch this now. Watch this. So again, the statements of equality with God. Watch what, what is it? he says. All right. For this reason. See, you have a problem that I said and claimed to be God. I'm telling you that I am God. I even told you that God himself would do marvelous works through me to prove to you that I'm God. But let me show you something else. The father won't judge anybody. He said, wait, wait, wait. We all thought, I even hear people thinking even today, that they're going to stand before God. Yes, but not God the father. Every man, woman, will stand before Jesus and be judged. Notice Jesus says the father will judge no man so that all would respect, <laughs> slowing it down, so that all will honor the son even as you honor the father. How do you honor the father as God? Jesus said, and how should you honor the son as God. 
You see, he ain't backing down from nothing. He keeps saying, I am God. I'm equal with God. Now, in this particular thing, he says, in the same way that you fear God, that one day you will answer to God in the judgment. Let me tell you a little secret. No man will stand before God the Father in the judgment. They will all stand before, if, if Jesus would say, me. They're going to all stand before him. And why did God orchestrate it that way? Why did God set it that all men should be judged by the son and not the father? So that you would have respect in the same way for the son that you do for the father. And then Jesus lays down a concrete statement. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Equality. If you don't honor me, in every way that you honor God, then you also don't honor God. You cannot dishonor the son for his person, for his divine nature. You cannot reject that Jesus is God, that Jesus is equal with God and say, I still have a relationship with God and I still honor the father. Jesus says, Except you, and notice this is the context of the whole passage. Except you honor me in the way that I stated. What stated? The, the statement that I made that wanted, you wanted to kill me for. That is, I was equal with God, that I am God. Except you honor me in this way. He says, if you don't honor me this way, you don't honor the Father that way. Neither do you honor the Father as God. And guess what? It was no doubt about it. They did in word, honor the father and say that the father was God and Jesus now hammering out the point and you must say the same thing about me. But watch this now, watch this, watch this. 24, and we're gonna end it with 24. Truly, truly, don't you love them truly? Jesus is now emphasizing and he's still in context with the argument about him being God. The people unwilling to accept that and Jesus not backing down one iota. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Context, saints. Context. Jesus is still talking to his same audience in the same discussion. So therefore, let's stay in the context. This is all about him being God. The people don't want to accept the fact he is God, equal with God, and they want to kill him. Jesus ain't backing down. He says, I am God. He says, God himself will show you that I am God. And even in the future, God will allow only me to judge everybody because you must fear me as God in the same way you feel the father as God. He said, but you keep struggling with this. I tell you the truth, truly, truly in the emphatic sense. He who hears my word, what word? What is the context of him he talking about? He's talking about him being God. The people are angry because he says what? 
He is equal. He's making himself equal with God. This is that word to hear the word about the person of Jesus, about the nature of Jesus, his being, he is God. And if you hear that, and if you believe that, notice what, and you believe in God who sent him, you have eternal life and you will not go to hell. You have passed out of what? Death, out of judgment and passed out of death into life. In other words, we have the one of the first principal statements directly from the mouth of Jesus. And notice how he makes it emphatic. You must believe in his claim. You must believe in who he says that he is. Who is Jesus saying that he is? I am God. I share the being of God. I am a person of the Godhead. You must believe this. And truly, truly, if you believe these things, believe what? That I'm God, you can be saved. And that's what I was trying to drive to. You will be saved and you will not go to hell because you believe in my person. Okay. Here, coming all the way down. Jesus now makes the statement dealing with salvation. Notice what he said. Cause we're talking about passing out of death. That is the judgment. He said judgment and death, hell itself, going into life, having eternal life, salvation. How is a person saved? What is the context? You must believe he is God. If you fail to believe that Jesus is God, heaven, you will not see. I've also heard, I've heard people say, well, I don't believe he's God. I believe maybe he's some created being uh, like an angel or a great man, you know, but I don't think that he God taking human form. That's the whole point of John's gospel. He is God who has come into human form. That's the whole point of these arguments that Jesus is having with the people. He is God. And except you believe that salvation is not available to you to hell. You will go and to hell. You will die in your sins. Two things you must believe. Let me finish this way. Let me finish this way. Two things you must believe about Jesus. That's why I keep telling you guys over and over and over about these titles of Jesus, son of man, that he is a man, that he came in human flesh. Why? So that he could offer up his body as a sacrifice for sin. Why? Because we need the shedding of the Messiah's blood to atone for sin. Therefore, he must be made a man. And then the rudimentary principle of all things from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, only God can save. And that's John's whole point. Do I need to say it again? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And what happened with God? The word became a man flesh. You must believe these two things about Jesus in order to be saved. Okay. And this is what Paul meant in Romans chapter eight, when he says, for if you confess with your mouth 
and they just kind of put it together in a tidal way. The Lord Jesus, that is Jesus is Lord. And the title of Kurios, Lord Jesus, is the divine title. It's how we separate in person God the Father from God the Son. In New Testament, they call God the Father simply, usually just God or Father. But how do you separate? Because there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You can say concerning all three persons, you can simply say God. But when you want to make the distinction in the persons, you would say God, referencing the Father or Father, and you would say Lord in referencing to Jesus, and you would say Spirit in representing the Spirit's person as God. So, if you confess with your mouth, this is the formula of Paul. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. You are saying what? Jesus is God. Then he says what? If you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. In order to die, you must have mortal flesh. You must be a man. If you believe in, then that is you believe the plan of God in sending his son to die for sin and atone them on the cross. What does Paul say? You will be saved. You accept, you believe in your heart about Jesus. He is Lord. He is God. You believe that he died for your sins. What? You will be saved. Two things you must believe that he is son of God, God and son of man, man. He is the God of Man. All right. <laughs> oh, I didn't intend for that to go that long. And I didn't intend to start hooping at the end. But I always enjoy the point of God. And it just stirs my spirit. It solidifies my faith in the person of Jesus, in who he is, and that he is who he claimed to be. And as John simply says, and keeps saying over and over again, Jesus is God. Put your faith in him. If you don't put your faith in this about Jesus, you cannot be saved. And if you didn't, you were never saved. All right. Thanks, guys, for joining me with that. And we see that Jesus basically made the claim. He set the scene. Jesus set the scene with the healing of this man at the pool of Bethesda. And that's why he did it. That's why Jesus initiated the conversation. That's why he told him, take your pallet up and walk so that we would have this teaching from our Lord about his person, that Jesus would be able to make the claim of divinity. All right. So thanks for joining me with that. Join me next time because as we continue to move through chapter five, we are in that same discussion. And Jesus is going to simply give preponderance of evidence about that he is God. How do you know he is God? And what will he do to prove that he is God? Are there any witnesses that he is God? And so it's going to all be simply a building up to his claim. To, to simply say, I made the claim that I am God. And so therefore, these things that I'm now saying simply prove and justify that claim okay anyway thanks for joining me and remember guys if these lessons have been a blessing if you want to say pastor lee thank you i 
I've learned so much. I've grown in my faith so much. If you want to say thank you, then say thank you through supporting the ministry. So down in the description, there's always a link in the description how you can support this ministry and allow me to continually, can I even say the way I really felt in my heart, humbly, humbly, because I am nothing more than a servant of the Lord. Anyway, 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 to keep bringing you these lessons that I myself greatly desire to teach you anyway. But join me, support me, and pray for me. All right, guys, enough of that, enough for today. Until next time, we'll see you for the end of chapter five.